Welcome back to the 63rd episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. Some talking about how the Fourth Amendment doesn't necessarily hold up, or at least needs to be checked in some way with all this digital surveillance we have in our lives. An article talking about how taxation is theft. And I know you've heard this one before, but maybe you haven't heard some of these cases. And it is quite scary, if you ask me. And we have our last article that really rips into Democrats. And I was surprised when I read it from Politico, of all places. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight. A story meant to leave you positive and ready to take on the day. Now, it's enough rambling for me. Let's jump into our daily debate. So we'll start with the question. When, when is the next convention of states? Could we even have one nowadays? Which, you know, that probably sounds a little glib, but it's, it's a genuine question. Is there an issue? Are there issues that could bring the states together to force a vote on another amendment? The last one was in 1992 and was more procedural than anything if we look at it. So could we even bring a, quote, digital bill of rights to be spoke about in front of these states and have it ratified? I honestly don't know the answer. I don't have the answers to this question. But if we want to be continued if we want to continue to be perceived as a free nation, we have to. We have to genuinely consider a digital bill of rights, especially with the metaverse become, probably becoming an important, if not at least periphery piece of technology in our society where your data, you are willingly giving over so much data in order to operate in the metaverse that that could easily be exploited. Ads could literally be placed in your experience without you even knowing that they're ads. They could be shown as social interactions between two random people walking on the street, which could be a very subliminal way to advertise certain products or certain experiences. So, and this, of course, isn't exactly where this ar article that we have first is going. It's actually talking more about how the Supreme Court hasn't necessarily addressed the Fourth Amendment, cons Amendment concerns with the technology we already have. I'm just projecting into the future when I'm saying the metaverse and this technology that could be extremely dangerous considering it needs a large amount of your data to operate fully. It needs to be able to track your face, your emotions, and therefore it will learn those things over time and replicate it without you even knowing. And it can detect how you feel just by looking at you. Just like some of these AI systems that I'll mention here in this next article. So I think it is time to genuinely consider having a, at least laws on the books that detail what rights people have online. And if we could, if we could press hard enough, I think a digital bill of rights is necessary going into a future that is looking ever more digital. But I'll slow down. Let's get to the headline of the article first and, and go through some of the presuppositions that they have here. This one comes from the Bell Walk. Can the Fourth Amendment survive digital surveillance? So if you were born 200 years ago, 
could you predict how far technology would come? And I think if you had even asked the question to the founders at the time, well, if you guys look back, if you look henceforth back 200 centuries from now, whatever parlance of the time they would use, if you look 200 years back, would the technology, the growth of technology, the speed at which technology changed, would you guys have been able to predict that? And they would have said no. Now imagine from then, looking forward, they definitely would not have been able to predict all this technology, and especially how we would use it. And the founders of our nation were great men who understood the flaws of people. That's how they were able to make a system that is meant to check and balance and ensure freedom, because they understood a lot of the flaws that people had. But there's no way they could have predicted the technology, how it would evolve, and how we would use it and how those flaws would end up being exploited or exaggerated by some of this technology. Quote, the Fourth Amendment guarantees the right of people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. The founders opposed the British practice of issuing government warrants, edicts, that allowed government officers to undertake sweeping searches without suspicion. As Justice Robert Jackson put it, the forefathers, after consulting the lessons of history, decided our Constitution to place an obstacle in the way of permitting police surveillance, end quote. So, of course, we are, if we're to apply the reasoning provided in the Fourth Amendment, we could interpret how to apply it in modern situations, we are not to ensure that people's persons, houses, papers, effects, and what does effects mean? That's a good question. But if we were to apply this as the standard, that these things should not be seized by the government without a warrant or without proper suspicion to get a warrant, then, okay, we could work from there. But then the question becomes... Well, what about the outside of a house? Because now we have thermal imaging. You can point a thermal camera at a house, and this is how they detect if people were illegally growing weed before the, a lot of laws change in a lot of states. They would look at, okay, well, this house has a large energy consumption. Let's point a thermal camera at it, and if they have lots of UV lights running, it will be a lot hotter. Well... At the end of the day, that's not actually seizing or searching someone's house's person's papers or effects. That's just on the outside. I mean, we're not actually invading their privacy, but it's still going about a search process. It's still having a suspicion and being able to verify your suspicion, gather data that could be used in a case against that person without necessarily having to have a, a warrant to search and seize them. Now, then these officers would probably use this information, and they would go to a judge and say, look at what's happening here. This thermal camera is showing us that the heat coming off this building is extremely, extremely different than its neighbors. Look at how much hotter it is. Give us a search warrant. So the question then becomes... How do we implement the Fourth Amendment? Should that be okay? Is it just, just like an investigation tactic that sheriffs would use 
back in the 1800s? Or is this a violation of privacy using technology to look into the house, essentially? I mean, imagine in the future when thermal technology is so good that it can actually distinguish between the walls of your house and someone that's a little bit warmer walking inside, and they could see the movement, your movements. I mean, let's be clear, we're not there yet, but imagine that we get to that point, and I assume that would violate the Fourth Amendment and would be struck down, but it's a gray area. The founders couldn't have predicted this, and this is an issue that the Supreme Court hasn't necessarily taken up, and it's an extremely hard issue for a lot of originalist lawyers and judges because in order to apply the fourth amendment in order to extrapolate the fourth amendment to our current circumstance they have to interpret the intent of the document and originalists always say well how can we know their intent how can we totally know their mind so to speak and then we're reading into the Constitution what we want to read into rather than understanding when the Second Amendment says you have the right to bear arms, period, full stop. You can own guns. You have the right to bear arms. There's no reading into it. They didn't intend for it to be a militia. They didn't intend for it to be a certain way. It's just you can bear arms. So then if they open that door on the Fourth Amendment, saying, well, the intent of the founders was such, then they kind of opened that door to interpretational or interpretist lawmakers saying, well, why are you interpreting the Fourth Amendment but not the Second Amendment? So I think this is why a lot of lawmakers, sorry, judges, lawyers, have been hesitant to really tackle this question. And the author kind of lambasts them for doing so. But I think that's because it is a tricky issue, and it actually requires us to realize the Fourth Amendment is great at what it does. It is protecting us against the overreach of government. But at the end of the day, in a new world, a world dominated by technology, data points, giving up life information very easily, not being super private, by putting it on the Internet... So maybe we should have a revised digital bill of rights. So one of the examples that the article gives of this violation or how the Fourth Amendment can be twisted nowadays is a local department. Actually, it was the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. They placed a camera outside a house of a suspicious person and there was no officers needed to sit there and stake it out, so why would they need a warrant? They simply placed a camera on a telephone pole, and they weren't seizing any physical material, and they gained a lot of information from this practice. Quote, That's what happened to Delphine Moore. The Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives suspected Moore's daughters of selling guns and drugs out of Moore's home in Springfield, Massachusetts. So, ATF agents, no warrant in hand, placed a digital camera on a high-utility pole, trained down on the house, and proceeded to track the ongoings there via 24-7 live stream for the next eight months, end quote. And let's be clear, while this was fought in court and eventually the court did come down on her side, it still has not been addressed at the Supreme Court level. And there are lots of cases like this that the article brings up. We just don't have time to go through every single one of them.
So then from this example here, oh, they're live streaming her activities 24-7. The question then becomes, if they can monitor you 24-7 at your house, or at least the outside of your house, then why not every step in a public square or a local street? And a lot of places already have surveillance cameras up on most street corners. Look at New York. Uh, apparently, it's supposed to help curve the crime rate there. So that's all well and good. I mean, if you're not doing anything wrong in those areas, then why should you be worried about the constant surveillance or at least someone constantly having their eye on you? Well, because it's no longer a person. A cop doesn't even have to be watching. It can be automated. It can be an AI program that tracks what you're holding. Some can distinguish if you have keys. They can read your license plate. They can tell if you're smiling, crying, or just angry. Remember how I was talking about in the metaverse, the programs, the AIs, the facial sensors will be able to tell if you're happy or sad, and they could change their in-metaverse response Try if they're trying to sell you something and they notice you get a little bit angry, or there's a a micro-expression that you can't necessarily understand or you don't even know that you're doing, they could use that to subtly, subtly sell you something else. And why do I make the connection here? Because the AI programs that are running in the real world are always learning. And this is a lot of training data for them in the future. So if they're able to constantly observe you, observe your habits, observe how you go about your day, then at the end of the day, they'll know, okay, she walks by this store, she may be happy, she may be sad certain days. It's maybe a good day to send her a push notification, a push ad about buying uh, a certain product from a certain company. And I know this is, of course, very, not conspiratorial, but it is definitely stretching, saying, oh, you're going to walk past the store, they're going to give you a, a push ad? Facebook already does this. They already look at your location and then they're more likely to send you certain ads based on where you are, especially in highly packed cities where there are lots of grocers or Amazon stores or Kmart's targets, all these sort of large stores with large amounts of funds that are close by. Facebook already sends push notifications or ads put on Facebook that indicate oh, well, you could go buy this product at a local Target, and one's only five minutes away. So why wouldn't they do that in the future when they're able to surveil you, look at your habits, understand what's going on, and then push notifications to you, whether you go on YouTube, Google, so on and so forth. So, in, you know, this is happening everywhere. And it kind of sounds like China to me, and I think it is extremely, extremely scary. And... Let's not forget the unprecedented amount of information that is already gathered on social media, other online search history uh, extensions or Google itself, and almost for almost any use of the Internet, your locations, habits, and deepest shames are only a warrant away. At the end of the day, all of this information is just out there. And if the cops have any sort of suspicion, if they're able to put a camera outside your house and track your movements and therefore determine that you are being suspicious, they could take it to a judge and they could get a warrant for all your other online data. So this is an extremely, extremely important conversation. 
not just because of the implications, not just because how we need to look at the Fourth Amendment in this modern era, but also it really opens up the door to understanding the importance of digital privacy, not just physical privacy, not just physical security, digital privacy and digital security. You should have access to your records. You should be able to see what companies have your data, what they're using them for, where they're sending them, how much money they're making off of them. I think these are all genuine considerations. And to be clear, I'm not saying all those came from me. My professor and I had a very long talk about this, and he enlightened me to some of the issues that I didn't necessarily fully understand on this topic. He's a, he's a brilliant guy. He really enlightened me on a lot of this stuff. And that's why I'm genuinely concerned about it. And I've also read other articles, especially the one that I was speaking about, about the metaverse, that really highlight to me how much of an issue this can be in the future. If we let it be one, we can take action now. We can be the change. All right, so we're going to jump to our second article. This one comes from Hot Air. Taxation is theft, and I can prove it. This guy is a, is a libertarian. I could tell you that. I could tell you by that phrasing right there. Quote, libertarians like to repeat the mantra that taxation is theft. See, I told you. In my mind, this is a bit of hyperbole, although it does serve the purpose of reminding people that government achieves its goals through coercion. Generally, though, I would avoid using the phrase because I think it doesn't serve the purpose of persuading people to address solvable problems, such as excessive government taxation, spending, and regulation. Most people recognize that taxation is a necessary evil. The alternative being roving bands of thugs stealing from you rather than more pleasant bureaucrats. Plus, you occasionally get a road out of the bargain, end quote. And even though I hate taxes as much as the next guy, I, I do love driving. Oh, and I, not to mention the police and the fire department. So I understand the necessity of taxes. But some of the cases that he lays out here, they are quite scary in my opinion. The author points does hold true. And, you know, I'm reminded of what the, my philosophy teacher said about government. Government is the only institution in America that has a monopoly on violence. And all of their ass come with the or else attached to them, essentially. So take Ger uh, Geraldine Taylor as an example. In 1999, Geraldine Taylor bought a one-bedroom condo in Minneapolis, Minnesota, that she called home until 2010, when raising cr rising crime in the neighborhood alarmed her and her family, so she rented an apartment in a safer area. After she moved, she had financial difficulties and about 2,300 in unpaid property taxes that had accrued on the condo. In 2015, the total tax debt, penalties, and interest and fees Taylor owed to Hepburn County, Minnesota, was $15,000. The county government seized her condo and sold it for 40000 But the county didn't just keep the 15000 she owed them. It pocketed the entire 40000 proceeds from the sale. And this is just one loophole among many that the government takes advantage of. What about the many cases that you have no doubt heard about 
when a federal agent or a state cop seizes someone's life savings when they're moving to a different state and they had to take their money out of their bank account and bring it with them. And all they have to say is, well, prove that it's not part of a drug laundering system. Prove that this is not criminal money. Why do you have so much money? Just You have to prove it to us that it is your money and is not being used for criminal enterprise. And that's all they have to do. And, of course, you can fight it in the courts, but that takes money. And if they take all of your life savings that you have while moving, you're not going to be able to fight back, or at least not competently. Quote, government has always looked better the less you examine it. Liberals view government power through beer goggles with that hazy and indistant gaze that singles get at the end of a long night of drinking at the bar. Drunk and filled with a lust for power, in this case, so powerful that otherwise obvious flaws are blurred. It is only when the bright light of morning filters through the window that they might notice their companion has warts all over. Loving government is like going to bed with a 10 and waking up with a 2, end quote. And while I think the author's being a little bit brash there and a little bit mean to liberals, because some liberal people that I know, and I, not even I know, some liberal theorists have argued that government power is not necessarily the way to ensure that we have a free society. Traditional liberals would say that the government is to facilitate international trade, but we are the ones that actually participate in it. It is not the government doing it. It is not government overreach. It is not big government directly getting involved. So I know he's trying to use the modern term liberals here, but I would say you could be more broad and say people of the left because certain liberals and original liberal theory, they're not necessarily for big government. Now, some of them were in the revolution, not revolution, but the uh, sociological slash political change in England, some of those original liberals were indeed for big government, but a lot of them weren't. A lot of them said, no, we need less government regulation on exports and imports. We need to facilitate more free trade. So to say liberals have a view of government power that is blurred, that is not necessarily accurate, I think is a little bit harsh. And also it kind of pushes them to the side and says, oh, you can't be a part of this club. You think big government is a good thing, when that's not true of every single liberal. This is the kind of divisive language, especially with the way that he ends it with a snarky little remark about going to bed with a 10 and waking up with a 2 that divides people, and I don't think it's necessary. And, you know, I acknowledge that government brings a lot of benefits to a lot of their citizens' lives. And It's their job. It's the government's job to restrict freedom in order to keep society functioning. And it's our job as informed people, as an informed populace, to push back. We are the ultimate check on power. We are the ones that are supposed to say, no, no, we were given these rights. We were given the ability to live in our homes without having to quarter soldiers. We were given the right to bear arms. We were given the right to not be unjustly searched or to unjustly have our material and property seized. We have to be the ones to push back to, because at the end of the day, 
you can't just roll over. You can't let them take your freedoms. You have to use, in this case, the system that has been implemented, the system that's been in place forever, to actively fight back. And if that doesn't work for you, I am not advocating for violence, but peaceful movements, peaceful resistance, that is also another beautiful aspect of our country. The First Amendment allows us to peaceably assemble and protest. Now has the government in lots of local jurisdictions put many different barriers in the way, lots of paperwork saying, well, you have to fill out this, otherwise it won't be a proper protest. You have to do tell us where you're going to be, how you're going to be there. If anyone gets rowdy, they can break it up very quickly. But at the end of the day, we still have this ability. And if you are listening and you have made it this far, you are part of the solution. You care enough to make it this far into the musings of a random person, and you want to be informed. You want to hear a different point of view. You want to be part of the informed populace that I was referring to earlier. And with time and patience, we can be the change. Now, that's enough inspirational mumbo-jumbo, lots of platitudes, things you've heard before. Let's jump to our last article from the Daily Beast. Sorry, so it wasn't from Politico, it was from the Daily Beast. But still, I'm surprised the Daily Beast is coming for Democrats the way they are in this one. Democrats quickly got tired of appearing competent. So after what some would call a huge, if not massive, victory during the 2022 midterms, Democrats, they were able to swim against the Red Tsunami that was predicted, and come out the other side relatively unharmed, strengthening their position in the Senate and barely losing the House. But the tides have changed. Quote, the Rubicon was crossed when news spread that President Joe Biden's attorneys found the first batch of classified documents at the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement in Washington, D.C. The documents were found six days before the midterm elections, Yet the information wasn't made public until after the midterms were over. So much for honesty and transparency. Dems might have postponed their publishment, but a special counsel has been named, which means this story ain't going away. Politically, this is an incredibly damaging revelation. There are dramatic differences between Trump's and Biden's mishandling of classified documents, but the nuance will be lost on the public, end quote. And before I I move on from this, I want to point out the, not necessarily, I said elitism at the time when I was going through this, but I would say the snarkiness of that last comment. Most people won't understand the difference. Most people do understand the difference of how these documents were handled. They simply don't care. It's, in my opinion, it's less about how the documents were handled than when the president said, this President Joe Biden, said during an interview that Trump was a clearly careless for having classified materials in places that it shouldn't have been, end quote. And that's what people really, really are frustrated about. And at the end of the day, they don't necessarily care about how they were handled. They don't care if they turned them over immediately or if it took a little bit of persuasion. Because at the end of the day, Joe Biden did the exact same thing he called Donald Trump careless for. And that's what outrages people. 
And that's what the author misses here because he doesn't see the big picture. He just sees the small picture, which is how it hurts their political aspirations, how it hurts the Democrats politically. Not that he actually did something that Donald Trump did, and he called Donald Trump careless for it. And yes, he understands that that's going to be politically harmful, but he doesn't get that at the end of the day, people have a right to be angry about that when they're told that, no, no, Donald Trump, he, he's a really, really bad person. We should investigate this very thoroughly. And then everybody suddenly switches when it's President Joe Biden in the exact same situation. Quote, and that's just one example of how Democrats are muddying the previously favorable contrast between their brand and the Republicans. In early January, Governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, a Democrat, started taking a page from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis's book and busing migrants to Chicago and New York. Polis's move drew the ire of Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who is embroiled in another scandal involving her asking Chicago public school teachers to send student volunteers to help with her campaign, and New York City Mayor Eric Adams, both of whom condemned Polis's actions. Polis has since stopped the practice of busing migrants, claiming his policy was different and more humane than what Republican governors have done. But the waters are now muddied. Dems do it too, end quote. So what I'm hearing is that both parties are incompetent. Hmm. Politicians are just using the power they have to play games, to stock their own pockets to gain more influence? Hmm. I would have never guessed it. And this idea that politicians, Republicans, or Democrats actually are better than the other is absurd. And why (laughs) is this such a black and white way of looking at something? Maybe as a population, we should start using them like they use us. We jump from policy to policy, from side to side, only voting when we care about an issue, not sticking to those hard Democrat or Republican lines, not towing the party line at the end of the day. I think it's just a thought. And if you want to be the change, if we want to be the change, that's how we go about it. All right, let's jump into our daily delight. This one comes from the Animal Rescue site. Big Sister shows Tiny Puppy how to use the doggy door. It's always in the nature of older siblings to guide the younger ones and to make sure that they are doing the right thing, even when it's doggy siblings. Quote, the tiny pup was trapped outside and her owners wanted her to use the doggy door to come inside. But Willow was so confused. Thankfully, her big sister Blue stepped in and saved the day. Blue gently guided Willow to the doggy door and showed her how to use it. And like, end quote, and like any good sister, Blue made sure Willow learned the lesson and was able to do it on her own. That quote, then she stayed outside and waited while Willow pushed her way through the door successfully. It was so cute, end quote. And it really was the videos and photos or me talking about it doesn't do it justice compared to the videos and photos. And if you want to check out any of those cute videos, any of the cute photos, or any of today's articles, there'll be a link in the description below that like and subscribe button. Down there, you can also find the Twitter handle, at your daily flip. That is where I try to, or 
every single Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I post the link to the video, the podcast, so you can jump straight in from Twitter. Don't have to go searching on YouTube or anything like that. Just trying to get around the algorithms a little bit and get a little bit of outside promotion. But with that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.